It's wonderful to reflect. We have an echo. Isn't it wonderful to reflect on the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's so many aspects of his person and work that can encourage us and, and give us joy and give us um, what, what you might say, intellectual power, information of the mind, to strengthen the mind, because it is important that the Christian be able to answer when anyone questions the hope that they have within them, as it says in the scriptures. Let's begin this morning with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for every reflection that we've had upon the, the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the returning King. We look forward to his return, and in the meantime, may we reflect well upon what our salvation means and at what cost it was appropriated. We pray you would bless our considerations this morning of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm speaking this morning on <clears throat> the ascension of Christ, and um, that is perhaps not a very common uh, topic to consider. Most people would say the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ in a sentence and would tend to consider those three things very central to the Christian faith, and indeed they are, without doubt, and indeed they are. But the fourth one, that is um, part of what the Bible presents to us, is his ascension into heaven. It is interesting that <clears throat> even atheists and Jews and others will not be able to question the birth and death of the historic figure, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that is not up for discussion, essentially, um, unless you may be talking to a Muslim, because a Muslim does not believe that Jesus actually physically died on the cross, even though he was put on the cross. So that major world religion is um, at, at variance, even with um, unbelieving scholars as to what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. A young Arab woman was in my office this week, and I, I can tell you that um, in my capacity of teaching how to design sewers and such, I don't, and water pipes and rivers and stuff, it's not often that the Bible comes out, but the Bible came out on my desk this week. I don't remember exactly how that got started with this young uh, woman who will tell you that she is Palestinian, uh, but we were looking at Abraham and where the word Hebrew came from. And uh, we were talking a bit about the flood. Maybe that was it. She's in my hydrology class, and we had talked about flooding. And the flood came up, and Noah came up, and she pointed out, oh, no, no, one of the sons didn't get on the ark. No, 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 no. We know. We know what the Bible says. Why, why does the Chinese character picture a vessel with eight mouths inside? Did you know that? that the Chinese character for that is a vessel with eight souls inside. Noah, his wife, and his three sons, and their wives, eight people. It's in the Chinese character, and it's been there for a very, very long time. Oh, so there are 
Um, lots of different views on the Bible. There's lots of different views in, in uh, scholastic literature, but at least uh, the birth and death of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is, is pretty much incontrovertible. For a Christian, of course, we don't simply say his death. We think and speak of his incarnation, that he came and was born for us. I wanted to say that the <clears throat> incarnation was predicted. At the time of the birth of Christ, all of these aspects, these four aspects, had appeared in the Old Testament, some of them with great, great clarity, especially Micah 5.2, that exactly where he would be born, we would call it a village, the town Bethlehem Ephrathah, that he would be born there, Micah 5.8 or Micah 5.2. Um, and uh, Isaiah 9.6, that a pre-existing one would come and be born of a virgin. All of these things were already in the hands of the people of the day. His death led as a sheep to the slaughter by crucifixion in remarkable detail in Psalm 22 was also in the hands of the people that Jesus would speak to. His resurrection, he would not stay in the grave as it says in Psalm 16 and in Psalm 68, even his ascension, even his ascension. Let us go back to that one. That one. Think for a moment what your concept of our faith might be. What might be the effect of having the New Testament accounts tell us nothing about what happened to Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead? What if hundreds of people were certain, and they were, hundreds of people were certain that they saw the resurrected Christ? But what if none of them knew what happened, that he just sort of uh, vanished from the picture and that nobody knew what happened? How does that make you feel, that kind of, a, of, a, of an account of Christ? One might say it lacks closure, that things have not gone in a clear manner in a full circle, and I would agree with you. So I'm, I'm speaking this morning on the ascension because I think that it is good for us to not only um, have that as part of our theology and part of our historical understanding of the risen Christ, but also I believe there are blessings to be had in thinking about the implications of the ascension of Christ. What did the Lord Jesus Christ on the scene, on this earth, say about these things? Well, he predicted his own literal physical death, and he predicted to his disciples his own literal physical resurrection. He also personally stated that he would personally return, not in some vague spiritual way, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, if the Lord was speaking of a literal physical death, a literal physical resurrection, and a personal return, when he alluded to his ascension, I go back to the Father in John 17, 
I believe that in doing so, he was making reference to his own personal ascension into heaven. It is also personal. It is also physical. It is just as real as all the other components of the manifestation of the Son of God as presented to us in the New Testament. Isn't it interesting, you know, <clears throat> I've been in many a museum. My wife isn't a real museum person, an art gallery museum person, but um, she always comes with me quite, quite uh, willingly and cheerfully to varying degrees. Um, it depends what's in the building, right? It kind of depends what's in the building. But we've been in museums and art galleries and stuff, and the... It's interesting that modern art seems to be totally lost. I mean, I, don't, I myself am not really interested in, uh, say, the Tate Museum of Modern Art in London, England. Not, not interested. All weird stuff. I can't really... It's too much, maybe I'm too much of an engineer. What, what is that? You know, what, what? And then you go to another one hoping it might be better and it's worse. You know, and the next room is full of even weirder stuff. So, but when you go to classical art, when you go to... Um, you know, the, 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 the kinds of artists that, like Vermeer or people like that, that would, Rembrandt and these people, who would be highly, highly regarded, and their, their paintings are priceless, absolutely priceless. A very significant proportion of that art is what we might call religious art. I wonder why that is. That's because spiritual things that deal with the immaterial are inherently inspiring to the soul. They're inherently inspiring. The ascension of Christ is no exception. There are countless masterworks, canvases. You should see the size of some of these things. And then you, you, you know, you're told, don't go up close. It's, 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 if you want to give yourself away as a redneck in a museum, there's the painting, you go up close like that. You, you, you've just given yourself away that you're not a very cultured person, so I found out. So, um, but when you, when you stand back and some of these things you know, occupy that, you, whoa, does that ever have a lot of detail? How long did it take to, to, to produce that marvelous piece of art from the imagination driven by the the, the passions and the emotions that often spiritual things can engender in the human heart. Two, probably two-thirds of the art has got some kind of a religious theme. These things do stir the heart. It's undeniable. The ascension is no different. This is um, known as the Church of the Ascension up on the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> just to the east of, uh, of Jerusalem. And um, it's interesting that um, evangelical Protestants, ev uh, you know, born-again Christians, really don't engage in what we might call pilgrimages, do they? We don't say that, you know, you, you really got to go there if you want to get some... Uh, uh, maybe some uh, more consideration from God, you should go to Golgotha, to the north of the city, near the Islamic quarter. You should go to the Mount of Olives, and you should go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and of course, it's not bad to do any of those things. But does it gain you any favor with God? Not 
one iota. Not one iota. We don't venerate these places, which is interesting in and of itself. Why does the born-again believer not venerate such places? Because we don't need to. Because we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts bearing testimony of the reality of these things. And when we read them in the Bible, it's like the road to Emmaus. Does not our heart burn within us? Isn't that how it is? If we have time and funds to go and visit some of these places, fine. But the much, much more important thing is that these realities live in your heart and mind. That these things are uh, historical facts that have the correct spiritual meaning for your soul. That's what's important. Not whether you actually go to such a place if, in fact, that is the spot. We do know that the Lord ascended um, from a point above Jerusalem to the east of it, as it indicates in the Bible. I want to take you to three passages, the three main passages that deal with the ascension, Mark and Luke, and then Luke again is the author of Acts. And at the beginning of Acts, we get a fuller account of what had Luke had previously written down. And as you may know, the different gospel writers have different perspectives. Matthew has a rather Jewish perspective and looks at the life of the Lord Jesus as the king, the king who has come to preach to the Jews and also to us. Mark portrays the Lord Jesus as the servant, the perfect servant of God. And Luke portrays him as the human divine, the Son of Man, the Son of God, but the Son of Man, fully human. And John portrays him as the divine human, Jesus, the Son of God, the divine one, come to earth. So thinking about Mark, Mark's portrayal of the ascension, I want to think about the fact that this servant of God, what was it like? What was the, the portrayal, what is the portrayal in the Gospel of Mark of the life of Jesus Christ? What was it like to, to watch him? I want you to do something someday, if you're, especially if you're good at sort of fast reading. There's only 16 chapters in Mark. Start at the beginning of Mark, and go to the end of Mark looking for every instance where Mark is struck by the sheer volume of people who are around the Lord Jesus Christ. The word multitude itself happens 11 times, and those are not the only places where Mark is impressed by the, number, the sheer number of people that were around the Lord Jesus and chasing the Lord Jesus and after the Lord Jesus, coming down inside the roof of a building to the Lord Jesus, blocking the door to the house where the Lord Jesus was teaching. It's a remarkable number of times. My mind goes back to 1983. My wife and I were married 18 months. And <clears throat> I don't know what, what you, you know, in your daily life, this certain 
unpleasant experiences, that anything that you find <clears throat> somewhat you, you really want to avoid, you, you don't enjoy. I'm, I don't mind elevators, some people mind elevators, but you know, other situations that you, you really don't enjoy or make you a bit uneasy. Well, there, there is one that, I, that I'm not fond of, crowds. I don't like being in a thronging crowd much. It was December 1983, and um, Phoebe and I were in China for the first time. And I can tell you, 1983 China is light years back from mar mar modern China. We were on a street known as the Bund, and on that, on that uh, street next to the Yangtze River, which has a big flood protection wall there, there's a big Soviet architecture hotel where uh, Richard Nixon had stayed about 10 years before to thaw out relations between China and the United States. And we were, we were walking down the Bund, and um, the sidewalk on, either, on both sides of the road was sort of from me to the wall, and it wasn't wide enough. The, 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 the river of people on both sides of the road overflowed onto the pavement to the tune of a, a meter and a half or so. And <clears throat> we were in this. I was holding on to my wife's hand, and we saw something that looked like it might be a department store. And we were sort of, shall we go in there? Maybe we'll go in there. Looks like we're going in there. We were carried with the river of people up the steps to the department. There was no choice about it. You're going, you're going in the front door. And um, as, as we were getting carried along, um, I saw my wife wince a little bit, probably because I was squeezing her hand too hard. Because it came to me, I don't speak Chinese, I don't have a cell phone, we have no prearranged meeting spot if we get separated. Whoa, I suddenly don't like this situation at all. I am not letting go of this gal. <laughs> crowds, crowds, crowds. Eleven times we see that the word multitude Mark uses. Three times it's not enough of a word. It has to be a great multitude. Twice it has to be a thronging multitude. They were thronged. And once it was a very great multitude. This, this, um, this word throng Thligo, in one place it's sunthligo, it means it's not enough to say that the, it's a crowd, it's like the, they're getting together on you. Uh, together, sun, together, like synchronized, all the, oh. Mark is very conscious of this. There's a word in Luke about the crowds, it's related to the word, the word choke. We, we, we start, breathing is an issue here, the number of people coming day after day after day. In the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, this was what he could expect. Sometimes he had to get in a boat off of the shore just to be able to teach them. But you know one of the things that strikes you when you, when you look through these many instances of heavy crowds of people uh, coming after him and surrounding him, and, and sometimes it uses this, in the press, in the press, um, is that how does he respond? I tell you, I would be in, in a, I think you and I would be in a, in a pretty, we would be stressed out 
Give it a day, another day, another day, another week, another month. People, people, people. What does the Lord do? He teaches them. He heals them. He feeds them. He says, make a way, make a way. I have to tell you something about this child. How precious this child is. How we have to be like this child. This guy coming down through the roof, look at his faith. People, people, people. With majesty, the Lord Jesus moves through these various scenes. With control, with compassion, seeing it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the crowds upon crowds upon crowds and to meet their needs. Sometimes he'd be walking along and put it right there, right in front of his, to be healed. And with patience and with love, he would deal with everybody around him with compassion and love and majesty. I found it remarkable. And is it any surprise that in the Lord Jesus' busy life, this instruction for you and I in our daily lives, how does he cope with this? He gets up early in the morning and prays. That's how. That's how we need to cope. That's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ to us, to find a place to pray by yourself every day before the whole thing starts. Notice the words that Mark uses, received up. The Lord Jesus was received up in honor. That perfect servant of God has been received up and is now sitting at the right hand of God. His mission on earth, completed. Redemption, purchased. As one brother said this morning, tetelestai, paid in full. Mark, the perfect servant, is his portrayal of Jesus. That one who would rise up early to pray, he was received up, analempsis. It has the sense of to be taken up. It is as though God is recognizing and honoring and acknowledging that person who was the only perfect servant of God, perfect in every respect, to have ever walked the earth, and that same one secured our redemption. What are some implications? Well, read the next verse. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The Lord's work for them was finished. Now the Lord would be working with them through the promised Holy Spirit. They kind of thought, let's get to work right after the ascension. You will remember that the Lord Jesus posed the question, is the servant greater than the master? It's a hypothetical, of course they're not. He was the servant with a capital S. The, op the, the obvious implication of that that we should be servants. It is the natural thing for the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to do after his ascension. A verse on New Testament service. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the New Testament service ethic. Let's turn to Luke. 
Luke portrays the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man, the human divine one. He emphasizes things like the fact that the Lord Jesus as a babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes. The word appears twice in Luke. He describes how the Lord Jesus, at the end of Luke 2, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, watching that perfect man move into the human scene with all perfection. What about the ascension? Luke records the ascension. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. We might say that the Lord Jesus was carried up in recognition and honor and acknowledgement of having been the only perfect man who ever lived. You and I, we fail miserably. Who is our head? Who is our federal head? Who is our representative? The perfect man. The only perfect man. That perfect man who lived a perfect life was carried up and sat down at the right hand of God. He ascended to unending communion, that perfect one. He was born away. He was dependent on his father for his whole earthly life, and he was born away to heaven. Implications. Mark's gospel is only 16 chapters, and he jumps right to the the preaching of the gospel. Luke gives us a little bit more detail of what some of the disciples did. What did they do after they saw their Savior ascend into heaven? They worshipped. They worshipped. Luke 24, 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. This is a very natural outcome of having this kind of experience and this kind of contact with Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect Son of Man and the Son of God. He was our priest. He is our priest. Priest with a capital P. What does that imply for us? We are lowercase p priests. He is our perfect representative Are we, in any sense, in the New Testament, theology, priests? Absolutely. I love this verse in 1 Peter 9, 1, 9. But but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. No more priesthood. This morning, Clyde was reading about the priests and the sacrifices. It's all gone. It has been replaced by the priesthood of the New Testament church a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. I can vouch for the fact that some of us are peculiar. (laughs) That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We should be different. We should be set apart for him and remember who we are and who our true priest is and what our role should be in the New Testament. And now we come to Acts a little bit of a longer passage, and it's 12 noon, but we're getting near the end. Let's look at this passage. Let's read it together. Acts 1, 
Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. It is, the, it is the most explicit and detailed account. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. That is, personally. He personally has left. He will personally return. The Lord Jesus here is said to have been taken up in acknowledgement and honor of the fact that he is the king. He is the exalted one returning to his father. And that king will return the next time in power to reign. The first time he came was with swaddling clothes and in great humility, not the next time. Through Acts, we see that when, the, when they preach, they make allusion to the resurrection. The thing that, of course, had gripped the area was the reality of the resurrection, which then had the implications of the meaning of the crucifixion, that it was the ultimate penalty paid for sin. But they also alluded to the, to the ascension as they preached, as here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is our returning king. He was taken up. He is in the presence of God, and he will return. He has ascended to an unending reign. His reign is presently not visible, but he will return in power, and then his reign will be visible and in power. His feet will again, one day, touch the Mount of Olives. What are the implications? Well, we, we are awaiting people. We are awaiting the return of our King. I trust that he is the King of your heart. I trust that that idea of personal kingship is real to you. And while he reigns over your heart, the king of heaven reigning over your heart, I trust that you are telling people about him, that you are serving him, as they did in the book of Acts. Did you know that you're not only a kingdom of priests, but you're royal priests? What a standing is yours. What a standing is ours, that we are royal priests, 1 Peter 1.9. Treat each other with respect. Did you know you're dealing with royalty? You are. You know, there's a pattern here as I close. A pattern has been established. Things will be brought full circle. Things will be brought to completion. Romans 6 talks about the fact that when a 
new believer is baptized, that going down into the water is a portrayal of the death of the old man, the death of the sinner with Christ who died for those sins. Coming up out of the water is a portrayal and a symbol of being raised with Christ to new life, being born again, coming out of the water like resurrection. These things will be a reality. 1 Corinthians 15 gives you great detail on what your resurrected body will be like. It will be physical. The Lord Jesus came to earth physically. He walked this earth physically. He died physically. He rose again physically, and he ascended physically. And he's coming back personally. The day will come when you will be caught up together with him in the clouds. I love the way John puts it. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Think of that. When you lay eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you ascend, like he ascended physically, and you lay eyes on him, you will be changed. You will be physically changed. You will be given a new body that will never age and never get sick. And your salvation will be complete. Your soul has been saved. One day, your body will be redeemed, and you will be a new person in every respect. And then Revelation 22 tells us that we will then reign with him, bringing things to completion. I hope that these few thoughts this morning have been an encouragement to you. We, as believers, certainly need encouragement. And when I, I don't know, I know my, uh, my son in NBBI said he would be praying for me this week, and my mom said, she always says she'd be praying for this week, and I pray for myself. And my own prayer for my own speaking is that you might be, fine, you might be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to go from here having uh, a blessing that comes from the Lord and that you can take with you and that the Spirit of God can, you, that can use as you go into the Word yourself and as you pray in the coming week. I would like if we could, uh, I will close in prayer and then um, I will give thanks for the food and then I would like us all to stand and I've asked Matt to put, um, Lord Jesus, I love thee, the very last verse, which is a very appropriate verse given the material we've considered this morning. So let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can read in your word about the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who sits at your right hand and who reigns in heaven. We look forward to the day when he will reign and will be visible to all. We look forward to the day when we will see him and be changed, for we shall see him as he is.
We thank you for this meal that we're about to receive. Pray that you would bless our fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.